0: Hey, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, this is going to be our last week in this D.I. Yahweh series, um, coming to a conclusion. And we've been talking about how does God get stuff done in the world. Um, we know about God and his introduction to himself. Says, in the beginning, God created. So, in the beginning, God created, and he created by saying stuff light and it is you know separation and it was like he just said stuff and it happened and so sometimes we get the idea like okay if that's god's introduction to himself that's how he wants us to know him then if he needs to make something happen in my life like he ought to just say it and it happened like that like lord i need some cash I need these bills paid, like that. But we already know that that's not always how he works. Sometimes he does that, but not always. Actually, most of the time he doesn't. Most of the time the way that he wants to work is through other people, which is weird because every person I've ever met is a little bit jacked up, (laughs) myself included. And so it's like, okay, God, like you are infinite and all-powerful and perfect, and we worship you, you're almighty, and and yet, on the other hand, you want to take these like jacked up people who don't who rejected you to begin with, who aren't really good at everything that you want them to do. Like, why would you do that? What is, what is going on? And so we've been kind of wrestling with this question and, and uh, trying to follow the thread of it through the Bible, from the Hebrew scriptures now to the New Testament. And last week we talked about how God. Spirit moves God's mission towards unfamiliar neighbors. So, I want to talk a little bit about our neighbors this morning. How many of us have unfamiliar neighbors—neighbors neighbors we don't really know very well? How many of us have neighbors that we wish we weren't as familiar with? Right? You see what I'm saying? Um, there's there's this weird thing that's happened in my life, and I don't—I I'm not sure if you'll you'll get it, but I want to. I don't know that you will necessarily sympathize with me, but I want to see if you understand what I'm saying. There's this thing that happens because uh, Jesse and I have so many children that people assume I'm older than I am. I'll turn, I'll turn 30 in August. But we've always had... <laughs> we've, we've had children from, from the very first year, well, by the end of... No, we had been married for a year and then Camden was born. No, no, for, in, within that first year, Camden was born, right. See, I'm so messed up. So we've, as long as we've been married, we've always had kids. And so we have moved a couple of different times. In fact, in that first um, couple of years of marriage, we moved like seven or eight times. And we just kept the boxes every time. And when we moved into this house, I said, let's light them on fire. I'm never moving again. Bury me in the front yard. (laughs) But every time we would move, the neighbors would see, you know, a young family with kids, and they would assume that I was older. And I found myself in situations where I couldn't tell... If the reason why this situation was awkward and uncomfortable was because A, I had never been an adult before, and now people are treating me like an adult, or B, like people are just awkward. <laughs> you see, because it's like when you're 18, 19, you're 20 years old, you're 19, you get married, you're 20, you've got a kid, and people are sort like, okay, well you're 20, like you've got everything together, and blah blah blah. And people talk to you or they challenge you or they push back on things. I'm like, is this because you think I'm an adult? Or is this because, like, you're just weird? And it took me, I had to sort that out almost every time we moved. And trying to figure out how do you talk to neighbors as an adult? And I wasn't sure how to do it. I didn't, like, all the only neighbors I interacted with as a kid were anybody who could ride a bike past my house. Then you kind of, like, ride in your driveway, you know, until they come by and, like, wave, and then you drive. So they drive past and it's like okay, well, he did a, he did another drive by. So we must like let's let's talk now. You know, it doesn't work like that when you're grown-ups. Like and you have, you know, rent to pay and things like that. Anyway, all that to say is what does it actually look like? for us to be pushed towards unfamiliar neighbors what does it actually look like for us to be face to face with people that either are very upfront that they don't like us or don't like what we're doing or don't like how our yard is kept or whatever how do we how do we deal with those situations face to face like in reality because it's one thing for us to show up on Sunday morning and everybody to have taken a shower and and to be able to smile you know we all brushed our teeth you know we're all like it's one thing for us to interact with people It's another thing with the people that know you on a Thursday, like who drop by your house and, and, like, right before you're getting ready to eat dinner, and the kids have, like, thrown everything around, and, you know, your porch is piled up and can't even get to the front door. But that's, again, just my house. What does it actually look like when God's Spirit moves God's mission towards unfamiliar neighbors? That's that's what I want to do this morning to close up our series. Are we good with that? So let's pray together before we dive in. <clears throat> Father, thanks so much for this morning. I thank you for your grace to us. Um, I thank you for the way that you walk with us through every season of life, and I thank you for the way that your word continues to draw us back to who you are in your character. Lord, I pray that as we explore your word this morning together, that you would give us your wisdom not only knowledge and understanding of what your word says, but wisdom and how to apply it this week to incorporate it into our every day. And Lord, I pray that, that as I seek to guide our conversation this morning, that Lord, the things that are true in your word would stand forever in our hearts and the things that are just my opinion or that those things would just wash away. And God, I pray that you'd take this time and glorify your name in it. so in your name I pray. Amen. So we're going to close this series together in Acts chapter 17. If you'd like to use a blue Bible, there should be shoved under the chairs in front of you It's on page 1148, 1148, 1148, 1148, Acts. Oh, no, that's not, I'm on the wrong page. It's Acts 17. <laughs> on 1156, my apologies. And in Acts 17, I'm going to just look at the first two. There's, there should be some titles there above the passages. So Paul and Silas in Thessalonica and Paul and Silas in Berea. Let me tell you what happens there. Paul and Silas are two missionaries. They're two guys that were just uh, kind of, for lack of a better word, normal Joes at the church of Antioch. And the church in Antioch is praying and they're like, God, what do you want us to do? And God says, set apart a couple of guys, Paul and Barnabas, and send them out on missionaries as missionaries to go and preach the gospel. And so that's what they do. And this is, you know, the second time that these folks have gone out. So they're going out and their goal is to go into a city and share the gospel that Jesus' is king with, with whoever they can there. And so they go into this city called Thessalonica and they start to preach Jesus in the synagogue. So they go to the Jewish community and say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the king not only of, the, of Israel, but he's also the king of the whole world. This Jesus is, is the one that you guys need to get in line with. And the, the Jews in Thessalonica say, uh-uh, and they try to beat him. In fact, they do beat them, and so they drag their carcasses—not their carcasses, but these guys that have been beat up—go a couple more miles down the road to Berea, which is just a different city, and they do the same thing. They're like, hey, you know, you guys should—you you guys should follow Jesus, and—and and they don't respond as violently. But the people from Thessalonica follow them and start to chase them everywhere they go, trying to trying to get rid of these guys and kick them out. So Paul and Silas, like, there's some drama in their life right now. <laughs> There's some things that, that, that they're concerned about. And when we pick up in, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, uh, we'll see what they do, what happens when they get to Athens, which is the capital city of Greece, uh, even to today. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, for the rest of his group at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And I'm, I'm actually just going to stop right there. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he goes into this new city, having been beat beat by these Jews for two cities back, as he's trying to just, just I'm just trying to preach the gospel. I'm just trying to point people to the truth. And he walks into this new city, and his heart is stirred within him because the city's full of idols. Now for us, we don't, we don't see this so much in, in America. Our idols have a bunch of different kinds of shapes. But for, for Greeks, we know enough about mythology that they like actually would carve marble statues and worship them as deities. That as you walked through the city of Athens, there would just be like, you'd walk to the woodworking district. And there would be a god carved there that would be the god of woodworking. And you'd go to the meat packing district, which, you know, not really, but you know what I'm saying. Every place that you went, there would be a god set up to that. Not only that, but then also every house you went by would have a different couple of sets of deities. So he walks in to this city and goes, you guys like worship everything. And it's all stuff that's carved out of stone or covered in gold or carved out of wood. Like this is, this is, this, is not right. I serve the living God. I I got to experience Jesus. like He's he's done something real in my life. And I walked into this city of unfamiliar neighbors and they're so messed up. They got it all wrong. And his heart was... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city. I'm just going to camp out here for a second because loving our neighbor, remember the definition of love. loving our neighbor is choosing to see and choosing to meet a need in the other person's best interest so he could have easily walked into the city and just been like gosh these pagans, like forget them I'm just going to move on, there's no hope for them but he chose to see what was in front of him. And I've, I've, we've talked before that we live in an age of distraction, and choosing to see is, is, is a movement of the Spirit of God. Choosing to see people's needs is a movement of the Spirit of God in our lives. He chooses to see, and then he, we'll see later how he chooses to serve. But this seeing, this movement, this provoking of his Spirit was the first step. We've seen that God prepares circumstances to build teams filled for his work. We saw this in Moses and Joshua, like them working together to lead the people of Israel to move into a new place that they had never been before. These people who had grown up slaves, owning nothing but being property, were going to go and take a land and be landowners and work it. And they would have houses and vineyards of their own. They would not, they themselves would not be property, but they would own property and to try and lead people from slavery to freedom. That was their goal. God built a team for that. And we saw the work that God did in King Cyrus, who wanted nothing to do with God, but was just trying to make his kingdom in Persia work right. But God was moving in those circumstances behind the scenes to send people back to Jerusalem to build the temple again. And he, he sent Zerubbabel and Jeshua to rebuild the temple And then we saw him move in Nehemiah when the temple had been rebuilt, and Nehemiah said, "Awesome! Like the worship of God has been restored, so the rest of the city must be flourishing." And the news was no; like the city isn't flourishing. It's just like the the temple's there. How 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 are you how are you worshiping God and it not like permeating the rest of the city? Why are the walls not built up? Why aren't people like living there? And so God moved the spirit of Nehemiah to go back and build walls. We saw him move Ezra, who was in Persia, to come back and teach the Word and to lead the people in a revival understanding the Word. We saw God's Spirit raise up Peter to start to be the instrument through which the Spirit f- started the church. And we saw him move through Stephen, just average Joe Stephen, who preached, I like to make the joke, he preached so long they killed him, but he didn't preach. It wasn't, it wasn't the length of his sermon, it was the content, that Jesus is Lord. Like God prepares circumstances that are way beyond our control to build teams fit for his work. We see it now in Paul and Silas. And we know that God patiently overcomes obstacles to his good work. Paul and Silas here have have, have been beaten and kicked out of a city and chased by people that they just left alone. Like, it's weird. But the thing that has been persistent in every message, but I haven't highlighted yet until today, is why I'm only pausing on this one verse. Because it's been there the whole time, but I haven't camped out on it until this morning. And as we're wrapping up this series, this is what I need you to understand God moves first. God moves first. I've said it every sermon, whether or not not it's been something that I've highlighted or picked out, but God moves in prayer. God moves his people first to care about what's going on. God gives us eyes to see the needs in our community. It doesn't come from us. We're not smart enough. In fact, we're not selfless enough because I know for me, for my life, the things that I'm concerned about are things about me. And my family. And so if I'm going to see anything outside the things that are going on in my world, like it's the Spirit of God that's going to move my eyes and direct my attention away from the world and idol of Michael to whoever my neighbor is. God moves first. And so how does God get stuff done? He moves first. And he moves particularly in the people that seek his face in prayer. I encourage you to go back and, and review the prayers of Nehemiah who saw the need of the people in Jerusalem thousands of miles away and yet called himself, he, he identified himself with their sin. We repent. We have sinned against you, God. So will we pray about our part in God's mission? This is the wrong PowerPoint. I'm not going to use that will we pray about our part in God's mission because if God's going to get anything done through us he's got to get through your head first and we can like we can make it to the where God has to smack us with something to get our attention he's good at that he can bring heartache that'll bring you to your knees But if we can willingly come up and say, God, like, (laughs) things are good right now and I don't feel like I really need anything from you. I don't really feel like we need to talk so much. (laughs) But there's something in me that says there's something wrong in my community and you might want to use me to do it. Like, would you show me the need? Would you open my eyes to see the need and then lead me and guide me to be able to meet the need? for the other person's best interest. God moves first and he moves first particularly through those who seek him in prayer. So will we continue to pray about our part in God's mission? And they took him and brought him to the Aragapas, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, let me pause there. He walks into a city of people that really just like to talk a lot and like to think about stuff, and like to figure out how things work. These these Epicureans were people... Or, well, let me start with the Stoics. They're a little bit easier to understand. Stoics kind of didn't want anything to affect them. Like, we we still use... This was actually a school of thought, but we use that as an adjective for people. He's very Stoic. If he's a Stoic person, he doesn't, nothing affects him. Like, you know, somebody shoots his cat, and he's like... You know, something. You know, he, it's his birthday party. He walks in, and everybody's surprised. Like that—that's how we think of a stoic. A stoic was somebody who just wanted to harden themselves off from anything having any kind of effect. The Epicureans were kind of the opposite. They just went along with it, and I don't know. You know how people sometimes would be. And so you've got these kind of different schools of thoughts that kind of argue with each other and fight with each other. And he comes in and he says, Hey, you guys, like, it's it's Jesus. Like, Jesus is the one. And what is he preaching? He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What's the hinge of Christianity? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, I'm just, it's right there, too. Like, the, the point that he's saying is, Jesus came back from the dead. Therefore, you ought to believe in him. And they are curious which I find to be interesting. He walks into a strange place with strange people and starts to share what God has been doing in his life, but also you know, what he's been doing in the world at large, and the people are curious about that. But we've already seen that God's Spirit guides his mission towards unfamiliar neighbors, and you know, we've done that. And that God uses many methods to accomplish his one mission. See, Paul was the kind of guy who could argue with these people. He was the kind of guy who, you know, understood philosophy, not only understanding philosophy, but understanding rhetoric. So rhetoric means you know how to say the things right. And in a way that compels people. And actually, there's two. Uh, this is what I, I love about ancients. They were really honest about things. Um, they would study philosophy so that they could come to understand like deep and meaningful thoughts and how how does the world work together. And then they would study rhetoric, which is how do you say things pretty so that people listen to you. And they and so if you if they would be honest about like no 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 I study rhetoric like it doesn't the things it doesn't matter if the things that I'm saying are true or not. You believe them because I say I'm right. And so he walked into this city that valued both philosophy and rhetoric, not only having the right thoughts, but being able to communicate them in a way that, that makes you feel good or makes you is compelling or persuasive. And he comes in and he's the guy who can exchange on that level. He was educated. He understood how to, how to communicate with those people. And so when we see him going into this city and doing these things, like understand that God had gifted Paul for this purpose. Like, God had directed his path in a very unique way to bring him to the place where he could have these conversations. But God uses many methods. There are things that you are educated in that I am not. There's experiences that you have had that are completely foreign to me. And I can almost guarantee you, almost, almost guarantee you that if you were to go to your neighbor or you were to go to your friend and your friend was saying, I've got this problem and I don't know how to do it, if you told them, well, let me... like. Pastor Michael's really cool. Like, I like him, and he's pretty smart, so why don't you go and talk to Pastor Michael? I can almost guarantee you they don't want to talk to me. (laughs) One, they don't know me. Two, I'm a little bit weird. And three, it's intimidating. If you've never met me before, like, I've got the beard and the bald head. Like, people just don't like talking to me very much until they get to know me. Observe this, though. If you're talking to your neighbor, you're talking to your friend, and they're talking about this problem that you have, and your inclination is to go, well, maybe you should talk to Pastor Michael. Understand, they are already talking to you. God's spirit doesn't move and breathe and whatever just through me. Like, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. And they have come to the body of Christ saying, I've got this problem. And you don't have to have the right answers. You don't have to know what's going on. But they're talking to you and God has equipped you to be in that place at that time for that reason. So, if you walk into... Like, I'm not what I'm saying is this... Paul walks into a university and and, and uh, argues with the professors. Not everybody can do that, but there are places that you can walk into that a university professor can't. I can I, I know of neighbors down the street that if a university professor showed up anywhere remotely to them, like it's shotgun and get out. Like you just don't you don't. There's no opportunity to have a relation. There's no opportunity to have a conversation. But we are neighbors. We're friends, and Jesus put us here for a reason. Our address is not a mistake. Your address, wherever it may be in the city, is not a mistake. God knew what he was going to do with you and placed you near the people he placed you in for a reason. But this address here for this building is also not a mistake. 6474 Northeast 7th Street, Ocala, Florida, 34471 is not an accident. And if I could show you the thing that I had planned to show you, I would. That this church building is surrounded by just a block of neighborhoods they're not all connected because if you've ever driven anywhere in Ocala you know it, like nothing is actually connected to anything else and even though you should be able to drive from here to here in a straight line like you actually have to go all the way around there like you know how that is but i'm saying there's a block of houses like just just a block and i don't know if it's a mile 2 miles just a block of houses around this building and i've counted about 875 houses like within walking distance of here of people who have no idea that we're here. I can guarantee most of them. Any of them that I've talked to, I've said Grace Church, and then like, I, don't, I don't know where that is. I'm like, yeah, I know. So there's 875 households, you know, some vacant, some not. You know, it's Florida. That God has placed us here for a purpose. Like this neighborhood too, your neighborhood as well. Our address isn't an accident. And the question that comes to mind is: are, are our neighbors curious about Jesus? Some of them are not. I've had a couple of conversations, and they, they do not like. They don't want you to pray for them. They don't, they're, they're happy to wave at you, but that's the end of the of, of the conversation. My suspicion is that many are. And the fact of the matter is they just don't know that we're there. Or they don't know that you have this idea or have had this encounter with this person named Jesus has completely changed your life. But were we to be vocal about that, were we to proclaim it... That's Jesse doing magic back there. I don't know what, how she got that right up there, but she did. <clears throat> then... If we were to proclaim it, then their curiosity would be drawn out. You know what I'm saying? There's some people who don't know they want to have a conversation about something until you bring it up. So are our neighbors curious about Jesus? Like, 875 houses? Like, in my head, part of me goes like, okay, so 875 times 4-ish? Maybe? I mean, this Florida, is probably 2. At least by 2. Like, I already can't do the math. It seems like there's a lot of people there. But at the same time, like... For you to walk from our church building to the farthest corner, um, for me to walk would be 30 minutes. It's not that far. So God's put us here for a reason. Here's, here's the big idea. And I've put a lot of ideas together and I was concerned that maybe I'm not actually going to do a good job of landing this plane. So, if I'm not doing a good job, then then hang on with it. Here's the big idea. And my daughter, <laughs> God uses us to translate his mission into our neighbor's na- language. God uses us to translate his mission into our neighbor's language. Most of these most of the games that the kids play these days, I don't understand. But they understand it, and they can teach it to their friends. I do not know the game and could not translate it. It's not for me. Fortnite, I got no clue. I can barely play it. I can't wrap my head around a 45 minute match. That does not make sense to me. But God uses us to translate His mission into our neighbor's language. The way that God is speaking to you will echo with your circle of friends, will echo with your family will echo with your neighbors because God uses us to translate his mission into our neighbor's language. Let me show you the example of this in Acts 17. I'm going to read a bunch and then we'll come back to it. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arapagus, I can't say that word, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him so God made everything and he set up nations and the goal of the nations was that the people would draw closer to God like he wanted them to find him Yet, he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, your Greek philosopher poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man the times of ignorance of ignorance god overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So God uses us to translate his mission into our neighbor's language. Paul walks into the city of Athens and is just overwhelmed by all these idols. God's spirit is moving in him like uh, and as he's walking along he notices there's an idol there maybe it's just a plaque. I don't know how that thing works but there's a plaque there that says to the unknown God like we want to cover all of our bases (laughs) in case we missed anybody this one's for you and so as he's walking along, he goes in and he says, hey, look, Like you guys have this thing that you don't know what it is. Like, Let me tell you who that is. Let me tell you about the God who created everything and all the nations in order that people might seek him. Like, You already know this. You already know God created everything. And you already know that he wanted people to seek him because even your own poet said, he quotes, he quotes a secular poet, for indeed we are his offspring. He says, but I want you to know that now... He's overlooked all the time of ignorance and now he's, he's doing something different in the world. He sent his son Jesus and to prove that he sent his son Jesus, he raised him from the dead. He takes their language and communicates to them in a way that they can understand. Let me tell you how this would have gone if it were me 10 years ago. Because I'm, I'm a jerk. And God's been gracious to me. <clears throat> Walk into a new place bunch of idols in there this place is evil these idols are not right we got to tear them all down we got to break them down don't you know that jesus is lord of all we got to do something different you got to turn and burn like that's that was me about 10 years ago but but what god wants for us to do is use us to translate translate his mission into our neighbor's language Listen, there are things your neighbors are doing. There are people that you care about that are doing that is wrong. It is sinful. It is leading to death. I do not, I I will not argue about that. Like, there's stuff in our culture that's acceptable that is not acceptable. It is not honoring to God. And if you want to go through the list, we can go through the list, but I don't think it's going to be particularly helpful because you know what I'm talking about. And if the voice that our neighbors hear from us is turn or burn like, which is true. I'm not saying it's not true, but tear it all down. This thing that you value, this thing that you spend your life worshiping, like this identity that you have for yourself is broken. Then it's likely that they will not have ears to hear the good news. But God uses us to translate His mission into our neighbor's language. Are idols wrong? Yep. Paul in 1 Corinthians is going to say don't worship idols, like flat out it's wrong, don't do it but he walks into an idol worshipping culture and says let me tell you about that one idol that you are not quite sure about because my goal is to preach to you Jesus and the power of his resurrection the new life that he gives to us because Jesus uses people to meet needs for the purpose of salvation we see this at Christmas time and I don't know that we really get it. Like Christmas time is the only time, kind of, one of the only times that an angel shows up to give God's message. Like angels show up and they're like, hey, Jesus is born. Woo, there's a star and it's divine. And it's like, you think, Jesus got a whole army of angels. Why didn't he just send them? Like they're shiny. They get people's attention. They speak well. Right? Why didn't God just use them? He doesn't. He chooses to use us. We're not shiny. We don't speak well. We don't listen well either. And yet this is what he's chosen to do. Jesus uses people to meet needs for the purpose of salvation, to lead people into new life with him. So are we willing, if we're praying, and here's tying two ideas together, if we are praying that God would reach our community and God would reach our neighbors, if we're praying that God would renovate our families, are we willing that we would be God's answer to that prayer? There's times where we pray, and like, God, would you please just send somebody to preach the gospel to them? And God's going, I did. Would you just open your mouth? (laughs) Are we willing to be God's answer to prayers for the things that He's leading us to pray for? And here's uh, because God uses us to translate His mission into our neighbor's language. For us, grace, for us. I asked you last week how God is leading you. I asked you to pray about what it is that God is leading you to do. And there's a couple of things that are overlapping in our story. I'm not going to share anybody's individual story, but there are a couple of things that are overlapping in the things that you shared with me and the things that I see God has put on my heart. And the first one, actually, believe it or not, is prayer. Like... I'm not just pulling it, I'm not just like cherry picking texts to try and make a point, like it actually is all in there that God's, God moves when we pray. And so I think God is inviting us to a deeper commitment to seek Him in prayer for our community. And the other thing is family stuff. People have a heart to see, or people are broken over the things that they see in their neighbors' homes, and in their own homes, and their own families, about family stuff that's going on. So Grace, what does it look like for us to be a community that prays and cares for our neighbors who are hurting? One, it means the unfamiliar neighbors we have to be comfortable with. That when folks come in who haven't showered or brushed their teeth, like we're cool with that and we love them the same. Two is that we can't, we're just not going to be cool about them being in our church building with us. We have to be cool with going and talking to them in Walmart. There's uh, enough ministry in Walmart <laughs> for all of us to share. But I, I've talked about how we, 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 we repel away from those things. The, the thing that God showed me in the last couple of months is that I stay away from Silver Springs. I don't go up there. It's kind of trashy. You know. The people there are sketchy. Like, I don't want to spend time there. But hey, that's my neighbor. And if I can't bring myself to spend time with people that aren't like me... Then who like who is God gonna reach? I, I might not have chosen O'Cala if I'd have known it real well. But here's the thing: God knew it perfectly. He knows He knows the people that are here. And he placed us here at this address and at your address. Like he he wants to do something. God uses us to translate his mission into our neighbor's language. Let's pray.